Hey everybody, welcome to episode 52. And at this stage I have finally got together a separate website for the podcast. You can find it on harmonicahappyhour.com. So on there, there are some useful features. You can find some featured episodes. It's easy to navigate. There's also a donate page that if people wish to help support the running costs of the podcast, you can send a little money my way for that. So much appreciated. Rick Estrin joins me on today's episode. Rick grew up in San Francisco and started sitting in with bands in the city. He was friends with Jerry Portnoy, who persuaded him to spend some time in Chicago. Here he met many of the harmonica greats, and he missed the golden opportunity for the harmonicature in Muddy Waters' band. Turned out this wasn't a bad thing, though, as Rick forged his own path with Little Charlie and the Nightcats, later Rick Estrin and the Nightcats, a band in which he has played harmonica, sung and wrote most of the lyrics for well over 40 years and with great success as the band has won many blues music awards, including for Rick's harmonica playing and songwriting prowess. Hello, Rick Estrin, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Neil. So you're talking to us from the west coast of the U.S. Are you still in San Francisco? I'm in Sacramento, which is about 90 miles east of San Francisco. But I think you were you were born in San Francisco, yeah? Yeah, I was born there, grew up there. I moved to Chicago when I was about 19 years old. Lived there on and off for several years until I came back to California for good in 1976 or something. And then I moved to Sacramento. So, so talk about your early life, you know, well, what was your involvement early on with music and, and the harmonica? I always loved um, music and it was like an escape for me, you know, listen to the radio. I think probably that's true for a lot of musicians. Had an older sister who had some Jimmy Reed records and she had some other blues records and stuff. And, and I was just fascinated by that music and there was something about it and Especially, she, she gave me a, a, a Ray Charles album. I think it was new at the time. It was called The Genius Sings the Blues. And she gave me that album. And there was something about it that just, it sounds ridiculous now because I, obviously I was just a little kid. But I, I felt like, wow, this guy knows how I feel, you know. Oh yeah, well he does. He does that to a lot of people, doesn't he? It's amazing, isn't it? This connection that those kind of white guys have with his what was fundamentally African-based music, wasn't it? What do you think it is about that music? I think that it, first of all, there's more naked emotion in there. It's more honest, more than regular pop music typically is. There's also, you know, from having made a life of this music and being primarily a fan anyway, there's a lot of nuances and subtleties that I notice now that when I first heard it, I just took them in on a visceral level, but I didn't know what was, you know, what was occurring. But man, there's a lot, a lot of subtleties and different aspects to it that create that feeling. It's very multidimensional. Mm. I think. And, yeah. And, and it's just more honest to me. I don't know. There was just something about it. And then, too, I noticed that in African-American culture, uh, you know, as a kid growing up, I mean, when I, I can remember being 12 years old in school and I was walking next to this girl in uh, 
that was in my homeroom uh, named Sandra Price. She was an African-American kid, same age as me and stuff. And there's this guy walking in front of us named Marvin Vesey. And Sandra said to me, you know, she was just looking at him. Ooh, he's got, he's just got the cutest little walk, you know. And something about that, man, like, you know, I was 12 years old. I, I had never even thought of, of that. It was like an awakening to me, not just that one incident, but just... To me, black kids in school, there was just something more expressive about them and more more vibrant, more alive, more colorful, more they didn't seem as stiff, you know. Yeah, definitely. So you got that early connection with the music. So when did the uh, obviously there's a harmonica podcast. So when did the harmonica come in and you know, did you obviously you mentioned Jimmy Reed there, you know, did you start getting drawn to the harmonica and the sound of it? Yeah, I, I got a harmonica when I was about 15 years old. And I had already been hearing Jimmy Reed in the house. And I already liked those records and I knew some of the songs. I got a harmonica when I was about 15, but I had already heard and already knew some Jimmy Reed songs in my mind. And I, I was already familiar with him. And so when I got the harmonica, that's what I started trying to do. I, and I always wanted to really wanted to play anything else. I mean, when I was, as far as a style of music, I'd play a little guitar just to help me write songs. But as a style of music, and especially on the harmonica, all I ever wanted to play was blues. I, I learned a couple other things when I was just trying to learn, just because I was studying the instrument. And I understand as well, when you started playing the harmonica, your father had recently died, so that was quite an emotional outlet for you, was it? Yeah, I was I was really lost for a long time, and that was that was a, you know one of the principal things that saved my life was was it gave me something to, to care about and something to kind of like a refuge. Music was a refuge, and playing the harmonica gave me something to focus on, and I channel my all my emotions into. Yeah. So at this stage, were you singing as well? Did that come later? Yeah, I, I was actually singing earlier. So I always tried to sing, and when, when I was younger, if you listen to some real early, even before we were on Alligator, when I was really young, I had more voice. I was more of a singer. Now I'm more of a stylist than I have been that way for years because I, I, yeah. I mess my voice up. You know, it works out fine because now I'm probably more readily identifiable. But Yeah, give me character in that voice, yeah. But when I was young, I, I wanted to be a singer, and, and I, I was more like a, your traditional people that could actually sing and stuff at, at that time. You mentioned you went across to Chicago after a few years, but did, well, you started playing out in, in the black clubs, yeah, and that's how you started sort of sitting in with people. Yeah. Was that on the West Coast before you went to Chicago? Or? Yeah, in San Francisco. What happened was in my teenage years, you know, when I was 15 and I was starting to play the harmonica, growing up in San Francisco, there was the hippies were just starting to be mm -hmm. a, a scene there, and so there was these 
concerts and uh, Bill Graham and, and another guy named Chet Helms had the Fillmore Auditorium and, and, and another place called the Avalon Ballroom. And you could go see music there and they would have these uh, very eclectic bills with, you know, some hippie, you know, they'd have like the Grateful Dead and Big Mama Thornton, you know, Junior Wells and Buddy Guy and a Quicksilver messenger service or something so you you had a chance to see these people and so when I, and then when I got more serious about not when I got more serious I was serious from the beginning but when I felt like I was making some progress on the harmonica and with my you know just my whole thing I started going out to these clubs probably when I was about 17 I started going out to different clubs in the ghetto and sitting in. And uh, you were welcome there. I think uh, it's quite a case with a few people of sports. So, you know, the kind of young, these young white guys going to these clubs uh, were quite welcome, weren't they? Uh, I was. I mean, I, I, I felt that way. I, I did notice a difference after Martin Luther King got shot. You know, that didn't stop me from going, but I noticed the difference. But yeah, I was welcome and I was very, felt really welcome, you know, because they could tell I was I was serious, I was sincere. I you know, I was always trying to play the the real music. I think I had maybe not exquisite taste, but I had better taste than a lot of young guys trying to play, you know. But I didn't try playing a million notes. I always tried to say something. And at this stage, had you, you know, had you been listening a lot to, you know, the, the harmonica greats, Little Walter and so, so you'd start getting that language by this year? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I started out with Jimmy Reed, and then I, by the time I got a harmonica, I had already been listening to Jimmy Reed, but then I got some Sonny Boy Williamson, and I got then I threw the grapevine or whatever, you know, looking at British blues magazines and stuff. And I found, you know, heard about Little Walter and, and Muddy Waters, you know, with, with, with Walter on these records. And then yeah. I had a friend that turned me on to, uh, you know, Cotton with Muddy and Cotton with, with Johnny Young. And. I know, I know. Obviously, you like uh, everyone loves Little Walter. Yeah, but you do a good song called Marion's Mood. I was, uh, I was listening to that one earlier on. Yeah, that was that was like a, a tribute. Uh, you mentioned James Cotton there as well, and I think you like his high energy playing, and uh, is that what drew you to him? The high energy is one aspect of it, but there's also such a vocal aspect to his playing, the way he shapes notes and things, even amplified, and I'm not just talking about the obvious wah-wah things, but the there's so much texture and, and subtlety and shapes. People don't think of him as a, a subtle player because he's so, you know, very brash and in your face, but he's, uh, there's a lot more layers to his sound and his, the, the feel of it. And, and then most people pick up on, I think. And also he was somebody that I got to see him probably more than anyone else because, you know, when I was young, because his band was real popular in, uh, 
you know, Bill Graham and then the film auditorium and all that stuff. He was that early band that he had with uh, Luther Tucker and Alberto Gianquinto and, and, and Bobby Anderson. And, you know, that was just a very popular band. Yeah, I was lucky enough to see him once uh, in the UK, but uh, a little later, obviously. So, uh, uh, so yeah, I saw him play. So, so great. So you were playing in San Francisco. Is this where you were playing with Trevor Phillips and you got a, a regular gig with him? Yeah. Yeah. By the time I was 18 or so, yeah, I was playing with Travis and Fillmore Slim. Yeah, and Fillmore Slim, he was the pimp, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He really was, yeah. He was He was very famous as a pimp, although he's a great entertainer and a great singer, too. Did some side of that fall out into the band? You know, did you sort of see that? I guess he was ex- very extravagantly dressed and all that sort of thing. Uh, you know, he was actually, his. he dresses more like that now. He was a little, you know, more toned down than what you typically would think a, a pimp would look like. You know, <laughs> his the way he dressed. He wore nice suits and stuff, and he he had a Cadillac Fleetwood brougham, but it was it was very tasteful looking. It was a, just a nice soft brown color. Yeah. And he was not as flamboyant as people typically fell. Most of the other pimps that I knew at that time were a lot more flamboyant than him. Good. So you're in a quite a cool scene then at a young age. You'd, you'd, you mentioned again that you'd moved across to Chicago. I think you were friends with Jerry Portnoy, yeah? And he was he played a part in that. Right, yeah, because he was living in, in San Francisco at that time. And we were both just trying to figure out how to play. You know, we were both new at this stuff. But I had that gig with Travis and, and Fillmore. And Jerry would come see me play, you know. And we were friends and we would try to figure out, you know, one of us would figure something out and we'd show the other one or we just, you know, we were, we were friends. We were both into this, you know, music and just we were both obsessed with it. Then his uh, father got sick and he uh, moved back to Chicago. And when he moved back to Chicago, he would send me postcards saying, yeah, you need to come out here, man. I just sat in with the aces and all this. So so I found a girl to buy me a plane ticket and I <laughs> went to Chicago. Great. So, so then you could absorb the Chicago blues scene. So... Yeah, because on the West Coast, there was, you know, I was playing blues and there was a, there was plenty of blues out here, but it's a little different brand. It wasn't that the black migration to California was primarily from Texas and Louisiana and Oklahoma and mostly Texas, probably. And it was a more generally a, a more urbane type of blues, you know, it wasn't as country as as the chicago stuff that came up from mississippi i'm generalizing but i think that comes through doesn't it in in the west coast bands like your own we'll we'll get onto your music shortly but you've got that more kind of swing jive sort of uh, style Mm -hmm. in the west coast don't you than the the chicago blues and yeah things t-bone and 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 lowell folson who was actually the first guy that ever let me on a bandstand guys like that and charles brown were, were more popular out here and the, and the band that you know that you're in the, the, the night catch yeah you do have that more swing element to it so is that you 
you know, how did that come about? You know, when you went back to California, that's the sort of style that was popular, or did you choose that on purpose? No, it wasn't popular. I mean, when I came back here, came back here, and I started playing with Little Charlie. Uh, we were just playing Chicago blues, you know, trying to learn that stuff. We were in love with that, and little by little, we just started getting these other records and listening to different stuff. We got into Bluebird stuff very heavily one for one period of time. We got and we got into um more jazzy type of stuff as well. But it wasn't like that was a thing here, but that was something that was was occurring simultaneously. Like in Southern California, you know, you had Rod Piazza and he was getting into the same kinds of things. So it was really just something that naturally occurred. It was not a thing. Like later on, they started calling it, oh, the West Coast style and that's what came afterwards, yeah. So, yeah. yeah so, so be, before we we get onto the Nightcats, so it, your time in Chicago, you know, you were you had the chance to meet some of the uh, the harmonica greats, yeah. Yeah, sure. You know, obviously, Rice Miller was dead, and Little Walter had died a couple of years before I got to Chicago. But I could see Big Walter anytime. I could see Cotton quite a bit when he was not on the road. He would play, and I, I he would do these middle of the week residencies sometimes, and in, in you know. For a month, he'd play like Wednesday night somewhere or something, you know. So I, I got I got to see Cotton a lot then. I got to know him a little bit. I, mean, I saw, you know, just some, and lesser known guys, you know, little Willie Anderson and. like a, a little Walter disciple, you know, never, he didn't have the technique of Walter, but he, but there was something, the, the visceral feel of it was quite a bit like Walter. He had a, a more swinging, jazzier feel to his playing, even though he would, didn't have, you know, his execution and stuff was a little, you know, not as flawless. It sounds like harmonica heaven uh, being in Chicago at that time. Maybe maybe early as well, like you say, seeing Little Walter and Sonny Boy too, but uh, superb. So uh, a great chance to see all those guys. So is this the time as well that, that you got to sit in with Muddy Waters? Yeah, the first time when I first went to Chicago, that's the first time I sat in with Muddy. I, w- I went to um, Teresa's. Jerry took me to Teresa's and I, I sat in. I mean, this you can't even imagine what the scene was like in those days. I mean, Teresa's was packed and everybody was in there, man. It was a Monday night. I mean, Junior Wells was in there. Terry Bell was in there. It was, uh, I didn't see Cotton that night, but the band that was working there that night you know, and they're just sitting and ch- sitting on chairs, sitting on folding chairs. But the band was like Belo, Buddy Guy, Sammy Lawhorn, and I can't remember who was playing bass. But that was the house band in Teresa's that night. Wow, yeah. I mean, it's like what what's happened to the world? That, that's a Monday night, yeah. You, you wouldn't find that in many places on a Monday night these days, would you? I don't think so. No. Everyone's too busy watching Netflix these days, sadly. Well, you wouldn't. I mean, it was just an informal thing. It was not it was it was a popular place to go on mondays but it was i can't remember what the cover charge was but it was you know very cheap and just a neighborhood ghetto club you know so so this time i hear that you had a chance to to be the harmonica player in muddy waters band and mm. uh it, it just passed you by 
Yeah, what happened was that night in Teresa's, I sat in, and Terry Bell at the time was playing with Muddy. He told me he was going to quit, and he said I should come sit in with Muddy at the Sutherland Hotel where they were playing that weekend, come down and sit in. He said if Muddy liked me, he said I could have the gig because he was going to quit. So... I went down there and I waited around all night, Friday night, and he had introduced me to Muddy and Muddy said he'd call me up and I waited around all night and this place had a 4 a.m. license, you know, so I waited till 4 a.m. <laughs> he never called me up. So he said, I got up the nerve to approach him afterwards. I said, oh, I thought you were going to call me up. And he said, oh, oh yeah. He goes, I forgot. Come back tomorrow. It took me years afterwards to realize he didn't forget me. He just wanted to see how serious I was. So I came back the next night, and he ended up calling me up, and I played a long-distance call Mm -hmm. with him. And then the band took a break, and he was sitting over by the side with these couple of women. He sort of beckoned me over there with his finger, you know like crooked his finger and and i and i walked over there and he stood up halfway stood up from the table and he started shaking his finger in my face and he's going you out of sight boy you play like a man boy so you got that sound boy i know that sound when i hear it that's my sound you know and i was just practically levitating (laughs) you know so he, he asked me what i was doing i said well i was thinking about going back to california and he told me don't leave town for at least three weeks and he gave me his phone number and he took the phone number that i had at the time which was where i was staying with this girl that had bought my plane ticket and i ended up leaving that place so i I don't know if i waited but i ended up you know i never heard from him and i went back and later on i know i saw those guys and i and fuzz so man what happened to you you were supposed to be with us you know but as it turned out uh after that paul came back to the band he had he had left for i I don't know what happened that time but he, he left for a while he came back to the band and then I, I came back to California. Then I went back to Chicago and never really worked. That never happened. It wasn't written in the stars. But in, in the end, you know, it, it all turned out well for you, yeah? So It turned out, turned out <laughs> perfect because I was too immature to... I'd have gotten killed or something, man. I, I, you know, I didn't know how to act, man. I was an idiot. I could have grown into the job playing wise, but uh, I didn't have good sense as a as a as a young person. So yeah. it's it, everything worked out for the best. Yeah. Plus, Jerry ended up getting the gig eventually, so that was that was really cool. So after this, at some point at least, then you went back to the West Coast, mm-hmm. and this is where you met little Charlie, and then the little Charlie and the Nightcats formed. Right, that was like 1976. So you've been with uh, well, little Charlie and the Nightcats, and then Rickester and the Nightcats since well, this band has been in existence for well over 40 years. So uh, an amazing longevity. How, how do you put down your long success uh, in this band? No skills and no education. I don't know. Band started with myself and and little Charlie and and our mutual love of of Chicago blues. Really, he was so great. You know, we both had this desire to just get inside that music and play it. We had a just a, a real deep mutual love for the music.
So, so you talked about you know you know maybe being immature at you know when you were young and but when you're in this band certainly you know you've got a very strong image you know you've got this kind of uh, you know pencil line mustache and pompadour haircut and short dressing and you know the band were playing quite a mixture of you know kind of obviously blues rockabilly some jazzy stuff some swing stuff mm-hmm. so was there a transition early on where you're playing more kind of chicago blues stuff and then you transitioned into this more oh absolutely absolutely that's what we were bonded over that love of Chicago blues. Little by little, we started bringing in other elements because we were just listening to all kinds of things and we started introducing other elements into the music. You know, the swing thing actually came from, we really got into Bluebird blues, RCA Bluebird, you know, Sonny Boy and Jazz Gillum and stuff like that. And Willie Lacey was sort of almost like a bluesier Charlie Christian type guitar player. You know, he was he was a session guy. He wasn't a blues guy, but he was on these records. Little Charlie, we just got tr- fascinated with Willie Lacey and through Willie Lacey little Charlie got into Charlie Christian and and it just went on and on I mean I can remember one year we were we just were so into like brother Jack McDuff and soul jazz and uh, I mean it's just it was just a never-ending journey of discovery so, so you're very well known for songwriting as well, and you write largely blues kind of lyrics, yeah, for, for the for the songs that the band do, and, and you're the singer in the band. So at what stage did you start writing songs for the band? Well, we'd have to go back to the time when I was first playing in clubs. My, my first gig that I ever got was I was 18, and I got a job opening for ZZ Hill at a ghetto nightclub, which was, but it was a kind of a nice wasn't it like a tavern a you know it was a was a sort of a nightclub type place and they had it was more formal show so at that time that was when i met fillmore slim he lived across the hall from a friend of mine and i met him because i heard him playing blues guitar across the hall and i just knocked on the door so it just so happened that that week i was gonna begin my first engagement, which was like a week-long opening for ZZ Hill. So I invited him to come to the club Long Island. So he came down there, and he had another guy with him who I thought must be another pimp because he had all kinds of diamonds, and he was you know, dressed up and had processed hair and all that. But who he was, was he was a singer, and he had had a big number one hit a couple years before called She's Looking Good, and this was a guy named Roger Collins. And I met him that night when Fillmore came down to see me at the club of Long Island and Roger Collins 
became a friend and a mentor and took me under his wing and to, you know, just, we didn't live that far from each other. And he would come by and pick me up and whatever business he had to take care of in the daytime, I would just hang out with him and he would teach me different things. You know, he taught me about show business. He taught me about showmanship. He taught me about different kinds of music. And one of the things he, he would teach me about was was songwriting and principles of songwriting you know methods of songwriting and and i think i always had good instincts for writing songs i but he encouraged me to really get get into it so on and off i started trying to write songs and then when when i got with little charlie uh, you know, years later, and people were writing songs in that genre. People started not just covering the blues standards, which is what we were yeah. doing, but we, people started trying to write songs. I started writing a few songs, and yeah, I can remember one day, this was when Jerry had started the legendary blues band, right? After he quit Muddy. You know, we would talk on the phone, and he told me he had written all these songs because they were going to make a record. I forget, it was on Rounder. They made a, their first album, and he had written all these songs, and I, and I got off the phone, I thought, I could write songs. So I, I got off the phone, drank a bunch of coffee, and I wrote a song called TV Crazy, which was the first, turned out to be the first song on our debut alligator album so were you deliberately trying to write it from you know to kind of bring a modern approach to the blues rather than just playing all the standards as you say it's a balancing act i can't write about things that i don't know about so i can't write about chopping cotton or plowing yeah. mules and stuff. But I I had immersed myself. I, I understood always that blues and African-American culture were kind of inseparable. And, and I was attracted to the culture even before. I mean, it all happened simultaneously, and it was the culture that brought me into it. It wasn't the other way around. So I understood, I think, or I had my own understanding of the language and the spirit of the vantage point. I mean, I think a big part of the success and longevity of the band, you know, maybe is to do with the fact that, you know, you were writing original blues songs, yeah, then people weren't just hearing the same old thing. And they were they had modern lyrics that they could maybe relate to a little bit better. So, yeah, I mean, listen through the Little Charlie uh, back catalogue, as, as I've been doing. There's, there's a song uh, called Poor Tarzan. Poor Tarzan, okay, this is really where it came from. I was just thinking about Tarzan and the, the, that whole, the books or whatever. I mean, I never read the books. I think I saw part of a movie or something, but it just seemed so stupid that here's, you know, the whole continent of Africa with millions of people. And here's the one white guy lands there by accident and he's all of a sudden he's bossing everybody around all the all the animals are obeying him all the all the natives are subservient to him and i just thought it was such a 
bunch of BS, you know, <laughs> where, yeah. you know, it's just total, you know, white supremacy type of deal, you know? So, yeah, yeah. so I, 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 I just wrote that song making fun of, of that whole concept. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So you're picking uh, topics from all sorts. And another one, which I you know well from yours is dump that chump. That was a good one. I, I actually heard a, a woman say that. I think she had just come back from Alaska. Ta- I overheard her. And this is something Roger Collins taught me to do was to listen to conversations. <laughs> you know, if, when you're in a club, keep your ears open for different conversations. So this woman was talking to her friend. She was talking about her ex and she said oh he wants to play ditch the bitch so that's all that's all right because i can i can play dump the chump <laughs> yeah great that made me think i filed that away and yeah, yeah a little notebook made that <laughs> wrote, wrote that one down yeah it's a great way to uh to do it isn't it a song which she won the um the blues music award for a song of the year in 1994 was my next ex-wife the guy that cut my hair for many years, when I first met him, he was like this real super good looking dude, you know, and got, you know, was very social. So he, he, he got around a lot, right? So he was, you know, kind of a ladies man, right? When I met him, he was single and he was working in another guy's shop and he started doing a little better and a little better because he cut my hair for years. And then eventually he got popular enough, he got his own shop. So then he got somebody pregnant and got married. Then that marriage fell apart, got divorced. So he uh, had to give her half of the shop, even though she didn't cut hair or anything. But half of his income went to her and her his baby with her. So then he's going along trying to make it on half of what he was taking in and then he you know got somebody else pregnant got married that didn't last either got a divorce so then she got half of the half that he still had left so the the song was really about him i think at the time i don't think i was even married yet that's that's how that song came about was i was writing about my barber And, and so what about the harmonica in the band? I mean, listening to some of the albums, there's plenty of harmonica on there, but there isn't necessarily a harmonica on all the songs. Is you know, So how were you using the harmonica in the, in this, in the Little Charlie and the Nightcats? I don't think a harmonica doesn't belong on everything. There are people mm-hmm. that try to apply it to everything, and there are people that sound good doing it and everything. I never really thought of myself as primarily a harmonica player. Even, you know, harmonica's like a a tool it's a, something to enhance songs where it fits I, I and i know that people can play harmonica and put it on anything but i just was pretty much a fan of and i tried to play in these particular styles and particular setting i i just don't think every song needs a harmonica any particular uh, reason why you did put harmonica on certain songs any because i thought it fit yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing that you certainly do play a lot of is chromatic harmonica. And uh, so, you know, what about your journey with the chromatic? 
Well, I, I think I started focusing more on the chromatic a little later. I didn't start out on the chromatic because little Charlie and I started getting into, and of course, he, he got into it a lot more than I did, uh, jazzier type of stuff or more swinging type of stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. The chromatic kind of lends itself to that type of feel maybe more than a marine band so that 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 probably has something to do with it it, it feels more more right on on a lot of real swinging type of stuff or You say you picked up chromatic a little later. Did you anyone you've you know listened to for that, or did you you know play with anyone along with the chromatic? You know, I I I listened to Walter and George Smith. They're really the principal blues guys that played the chromatic that I listened to. But there are other guys that I you know I think Larry Adler was probably the greatest ever on the chromatic. So for technique and texture, I would listen to everyone because. I feel like there's a lot that can be done with the chromatic that isn't typically done in blues. And, and I'm not even talking about all the different, like playing it like a legitimate instrument like Larry Adler, but just even in the ways that you can shape notes a lot more than most people do, you know, more like a Marine band would do. You can do that to a greater extent than most people seem to attempt. There's a lot of textures and things on there. People usually play like single notes or octaves. in blues right but i play chords i play there's so many different little intervals on there harmony intervals blocking out one note one hole blocking out two holes you know in addition to blocking out the three holes and playing an octave so there's just a lot of a lot you can do on a chromatic in a lot of ways playing blues on a chromatic is kind of easier than playing the marine band really yeah, in some ways, yeah. You know, little Charlie left the band, I think, didn't he? In uh, in sort of two thousand. Truth, he left in the beginning of two thousand eight. Two thousand eight, right? And then that's when the band tra- transitioned into Rick Estrin and the Nightcatch, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, and then it took your name, but um, you know, you were the singer all this time and writing the songs, yeah. But uh, so you took took your name on, and uh, and the band continued then with some different members. I think you got Kid Anderson on playing the guitar. Was a uh, was repl- he replaced little Charlie? Did he? Yeah, that was the only personnel change at first. Again, you've continued to have you know great success, and you know you won more awards, and I think you won the the Blues Music Award Band of the Year in 2021 with these guys. Yeah, so you're still having great success with these guys, and you've had I think is it five albums out with them. The first one, uh, Twisted, mm-hmm. in, in 2009, and one of the songs I picked out was was Back from the Dead. I ain't joking. I came this close to croaking. But now I'm back. back from the was this about the reemergence of the of the night cats? It was. It was that was my idea to begin with. But I kept I was so frustrated trying to figure out a, a way to write that idea, just couldn't make any progress. I couldn't find a, a door. So I thought, well, what if I made it a more literal, like some guy that almost died? Then it was easy. Then it was fun. And then you talk about that, um, uh, this Back from the Dead. You do an album, uh, a song called Main Events on your most recent album, which is about your own funeral, yeah? Yeah. 
Well, I got another one. Another one on on that latest album too. That's about mortality. Called uh, "I'm Running." That's got some cool sounding chromatic on it. I think. Yeah, brilliant. And they're trying to trying to outrun time is the idea. I think, yeah, there, isn't it? Yeah. So you did a live album with these guys called "You Ask for It," and um, you do a good Sunny Boy uh, song on there. Uh, Too close together. Right. You, you do the trick which Sonny Boy does about playing, holding the harmonica just in the mouth, don't you, Rob? Yeah, so that doesn't translate that well to just a CD, but I did it <laughs> anyway. So you, luckily, I could get a pretty good tone doing it, so it doesn't, I don't think it really lost a lot. And then 2017, you did Grooving in Greaseland, which is the name of Kid Anderson's studio, yeah, where, you, where right. we recorded the albums. Mm-hmm. So, and again, you won um, Blues uh, Music Song of the Year for uh, Blues Ain't Going Nowhere. As long as this world ain't fair, hey, the blues ain't going nowhere. I thought that was a good song, you know. You know, I guess I'm known for humorous songs and for yeah. quirky songs. But that was a more serious political statement, which for me is is harder, you know, because it's real easy to sound corny doing that or pretentious trying to write about bigger subjects. I thought that one came out good. And then your latest album, which is called Contemporary, the, so there's a fantastic video of the of the title track, Contemporary. I'll put a link on to the podcast page. Yeah. I'll, I'll watch the video and it starts off with a kind of silent movie, doesn't it? There's a kind of old-fashioned right. style, uh, sounding piano and there's a silent movie with, with subtitles on the screen in sort of... Um, right. And then I, I, I laughed my head off, Rick, when it came up and it said, we might have to get jobs. Yeah, that, that, that was hilarious. <laughs> that <part. laughs> And then and then you burst into a kind of quite a modern. Obviously, the, the, the title "Contemporary" is quite a modern song, and uh, you know there's a bit of rapping in there, and it's it's all it's all quite you know it's got a modern slant on it, the sort of blues. So yeah, a great song, and I definitely recommend people check out the video. Yeah, that was so much fun, man. That's the great thing about this band, you know, with Little Charlie. Little Charlie was was great, super unique guitar player, and a just a, a great soloist. But it was a different process. You know, I would write the songs myself and I would bring them in there and I would sometimes I would try to write them with little Charlie's preferences in mind. You know, we'd rehearse and then we'd do the songs. With this band, Kid is kind of a, I mean, he's a genius in a different, little Charlie was a genius, Kid's a genius too. It's a more of a collaborative effort in putting these records together now like that video and and just making that song before we did the video we had another one uh albums ago called i met her on the blues cruise which we did a video for as well you know Mm -hmm. and we were just i mean i can just remember just being in the studio recording that stuff and just laughing so you know just we just had so much fun putting this stuff together and i think it it translates to the recordings and definitely to the videos. You know. uh, another thing you've done is you've released a um, DVD about uh, how to play the harmonica. A bit, bit of a different approach, this one, than some of the other ones, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I did that. I also made an album at that time called On the Harp Side, in between Little Charlie and Rick Estrin and the Nightcats. I wasn't on Alligator for a minute. I knew I needed to enlighten some people 
to the fact that my name isn't Charlie because yeah. for decades people just called me Charlie and I you know, didn't bother correcting them because they didn't hear it anyway. So I knew I needed to teach people my name if I was going to continue to have a career. So yeah. I made that DVD and I made an album called On the Harp Side. And with the DVD, I, I just sat down and I started thinking about, okay, what are my opinions about blues harmonica? Because in the beginning, all I had was I had the title, which was Rick Estern Reveals Secrets, Subtleties, and Tricks of the Blues Harmonica. I thought that would be a good title because, in truth, you know, nobody wants to do the work. They want the Mm -hmm. secrets, right? And then I, I didn't know what the content would be, so I just started writing down my opinions. In my opinion, that DVD is great entertainment but it's also contains a lot of it's almost like a philosophy of art and yeah. and you could apply a lot of those principles to almost anything and is it still available through your website it's still available i mean i still have some so on that topic a question i ask each time rick is if you had 10 minutes to practice what would you spend those 10 minutes doing 10 minutes Spend the 10 minutes listening, because hopefully that would inspire you to practice more than 10 minutes. (laughs) Okay. Because 10 minutes ain't going to do you any good. But if you spend 10 minutes and you're listening to something that gets you excited and makes you want to, what I felt like when I first was playing and first was hearing that stuff is I was hearing things that made me feel ways that I wanted to try to make people feel. I wanted to, to be able to what was occurring in me as I was listening, I wanted to do that to other people. Let's talk talk about gear now and the sort of harmonica gear that you use. So first of all, I think you're a Horner and Dorsey, yeah? Yeah. Which Horner harmonicas do you like to play? I play marine bands. I've always played marine bands. Any particular flavor of marine bands you like these days? Well, I play some some marine band deluxes and some crossovers, but what I've noticed recently, and this is just in the last couple of years, I started getting some just straight marine bands, and they are really good again, man. Yeah. They play really, really well. Yeah, a lot of people say they like the you know the old ones. So this is the, with, the, with the comb swells up and they the, the don't have screwed in replates, yep. Well, the comb doesn't swell up on me because I... When I was first playing, you know, they didn't make sealed combs and they didn't make plastic combs. You had to learn how to refrain from spitting in the harmonica. So that's what makes the comb swell up. If you just play wooden comb harmonicas, eventually I think your salivary glands and the reflexes in your brain figure out that okay this isn't food and you just stop slobbering in the harmonica that's what (laughs) yeah and um chromatic wise what do you like to play i play um honers again of 270s uh because i use a b flat sometimes Mm -hmm. and i play a, a, a 280c i i prefer the older 280s they have a sort of a smaller mouthpiece, and they don't have the staggered holes, which which doesn't make any difference. But the smaller mouthpiece just feels more comfortable to me. What about any different tunings? Do you use any different tunings yourself? 
No, I don't. I've done one overblow on a record on, on that song, Contemporary. Very contemporary of you. Yeah, but no, I don't. Yeah, I just use the notes that are on there. Which overblow was that? The six, the six overblow. The six hole, yeah. Yeah. So, um, what about embouchure wise? Are you uh, tongue blocker puckering or both? Or? Tongue block. I very rarely pucker. Sometimes, maybe for a certain type of articulation on the low end of the heart, but generally, I, I tongue block the whole thing mm-hmm. is that something you picked up early on when you were learning yeah it was jerry and i when we were trying to learn figure out how to play and all that here's the thing that really made me know that tongue blocking was that was the the, the, the sound i was looking for was i think i was about 16 and i went and saw muddy at the avalon ballroom in san francisco and paul osher had just got with muddy he was brand new in the band and the band was uh span and sp leary and sammy lawhorn and snake luther johnson luther georgia boy snake johnson and Wee madison i met paul and we actually became friends that weekend you know i met him i went and saw the band three three nights in a row and uh, we, be, we remained friends his whole life point he just played for me right when they were on a break and we were talking and he just played the last verse of juke right in my face you know just right i could hear you know this when you hear somebody play like that there's an added dimension to it where you know okay this is not the amplifier this is not anything it's there's and there was so much sound and so much groove to it i think prior to that i was thinking that okay well there's the harmonica that just is the added thing on top of the band and that's what makes it live you know like that is is the combination but when i heard him doing that i could tell there's a whole dimension to this thing that's missing for me tongue blocking was the beginning of finding that that made me see that gave me something to shoot for like you know because i can I can play a shuffle with no accompaniment and somebody could understand what's going on and listen to it and hear it and feel it and dance to it. And I can do that by myself because of that. You know, if you don't tongue block, I, I think there's, there's something thinner and less buoyant about your playing. That's an important element. It's not everything, but it's a very important. Yeah, it definitely fills up the sound, doesn't it, the diatonic? It allows you to put chords in between and, and all those good things, yeah, and other techniques, yeah. And some of that is even inaudible, but it's there. So obviously, the acoustic sound is critical, but, but what about amplifiers? What sort of amplifiers do you like to use? Well... I started using a, a Harp King with little Charlie. I was tired of getting drowned out. Or competing with those electric guitars. <laughs> yes, I have a couple of these 610 Harp Kings, which are, are good. They kind of limit the character of your sound in a way, but you don't have to worry about volume anymore, that's for <laughs> sure. So, so those are good for that. And then I also have a 19... 
man, I don't know the year exactly. It might be 59 or 60 Fender Concert Amplifier which is really good and that thing's loud as hell too so i know so a lot of time obviously with a band you're playing you know in a full band and bigger venues yeah so you need that you need that bigger amp to get the sound out yeah you do but but here's the thing is that the last few years increasingly uh we haven't been driving to gigs you know because you know we, we play other places just as much as we play northern california which wasn't always the case you know so we're flying in and i'm using whatever they have so in that case i mean i there are pedals i bring with me you know not a bunch of them but uh, one thing i that really i have found really helpful is a thing called an ep booster and that is just like a little preamp and it costs like a hundred bucks or something, maybe more now, but, but it's just a little preamp that you, you can plug it into almost any amplifier and sound closer to the way you want to sound, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just a preamp. That's a helpful item. And then sometimes if, if the back line is a, like a reissue basement or something, then I, I will use a, a boss reverb pedal it looks like a brown fender but it's not it's it's you know what i mean it's a little boss pedal reverb pedal so i use that and, and i with a with a basement i if they have that I, I don't need that ep booster but i could play with that ep booster i can play through a fender twin or anything and it will sound okay right yeah and what about microphone wise microphones i had to learn this years ago from dennis grunling because i've never been much of a gear person i'm not that interested in gear but I, I once did a recording and I had some amp that really had sounded great at this guy's house. And then all of a sudden, I got, it sounded terrible. I was freaking out in the studio and I called Dennis and he told me that it was possible that the, the mic was just not matched to that amp it's just not a good match and i had never thought i thought well, if you have a good sounding amp it's a good sounding amp you have a good sounding mic it's a good sounding mic but seems like that should be obvious but they have to be compatible but i had never thought of that so now what i do is i bring in my harp case i'll bring three or four mics with me yeah uh two gigs because i often if i'm when i'm trying to amp if, if one mic seems like it's not going to work i can try another yeah. one yeah that's a good idea so i have crystals and i have uh, also controlled reluctance and control magnetic and the, all mics are different. That's what I have found. Even the Shure CRs and CMs, they vary, and crystals really vary a lot. Do you get your mics from Dennis as well? I've got mics. I got a lot of mics from Dennis. I've gotten some mics from a guy named Mark Overman. I've gotten, I have a, a couple of mics uh, from Greg Human. I got, I got one mic a long time ago from Rod. That was a real good mic. Yeah, so you've got a nice selection there, <laughs> good stuff, yeah. Do you 
use a, a small amplifier at all, or do you? Uh, in the studio, I've used a small amplifier. You know, I have a, a Fender Champ that I've used in the studio. I also have a, uh, I don't know what you call it, because like I said, I'm not a big gear guy, but I have an yeah. old beat-up Gibson amp that has four eights. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I have some, also some uh, Masco heads, and I oh, I also have a, a couple of these Dan Electro Commando or Commanders. The, yeah, with the fold-out thing with the small speakers on each side for you know, it's like yeah. it's got like like eight eights or something. Yeah, so yeah, but yeah, generally the smaller in the studio, as you say, because you, I guess, you don't really do smaller gigs. Yeah, you've always got the full-on band and don't really go for the smaller sound. Yeah, there. I mean, there are times occasionally when we've played in smaller places, and and it might have been better to have a small amp with me. But but if we're you know we're on the road, I got to take something that's going to work everywhere. Yeah, yeah, sure. So then, final question, then Rick, and again, thanks so much for the time. So, what about your your future? plans coming up i can see on your website you've got dates in uh, uh, all through 2022 yeah so we're hoping obviously to get out gigging on this um hopefully upsurge in the in the in the virus uh, isn't going to last too long i hope not because yeah, i've really enjoyed you know i've really enjoyed um being back playing and being back to work you know we didn't work at all for like a year and a half and it was you know it was fine i got used to it but when we when we went back to work i really got used to that again too so that and i appreciate it i feel you know not to sound too corny or anything but i feel a love for the for the music and for the audience and an appreciation and a love for the guys in the band and and you know, like you had mentioned, we won Band of the Year this last last time, and I think we won it a couple of years ago as well. And there's a reason I feel that is a well deserved award, you know, yeah. because it's man, I got the best band in the world, man. It's a great band. Yeah, great. That sounds like you know it's um, made you appreciate it. It's showing what you missed, uh, then uh, not being able to gig all that time. And absolutely. Did did you spend the time over the pandemic, particularly you know writing new songs, or, or did you just take a bit of a break? <laughs> I should have, but I, I you know I'm pretty lazy, man. I, I write songs when we need when we need a record, you know. So when I was thinking, wow, I wonder if we'll ever go back to work. I'm not going to write a song for nothing. It's a yeah. lot of work, man. <laughs> yeah, but no, great. I mean, it's funny how yeah, people react in some way. Some people went and practiced loads, and some people just took a break. You know, maybe we need a break sometimes. Yeah, but uh, hopefully this break isn't going to be too long. I hope not, man. <laughs> yeah. So thanks so much for joining me today, Rick Estring. Thank you, Neil. Thanks. It's been been fun talking about things, and uh, I appreciate what you do, man. Thank you. Thanks so much to Rick today for joining me, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Remember to check out the new website, harmonicahappyhour.com, all one word. Uh, and on there, if you so wish, you can find the donate button and donate some money to help with the running costs of the podcast. Just over to Rick now to make sure he handles that big chromatic with care. <laughs> <laughs>